0: From the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse, in the Central Pennsylvania Town Hall of Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Way of Improvement Leads Home Podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, award-winning author and historian, John Fia.
1: Welcome, everyone, to episode 12 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home Podcast. As always, we are glad you have joined us. We are taping this podcast, Drew, two days after the second presidential debate. I think it's fair to say that things are really starting to heat up.
0: I think that's certainly true. You know, it's interesting. This is actually the fifth presidential election where I have had an informed opinion and only the fourth in which I could vote. You're, you're a youngster. Yeah, I know. I haven't been around that long. And the first election, actually, in which I was even really just aware of what was going on was that contentious 2000 election. oh uh, yeah, the hanging chad. Yeah. But I think that was more historic for its conclusion as opposed to its campaign. While political historians may be able to draw useful comparisons between this election and others, and that 1828 rematch between Andrew Jackson and John Quincy Adams comes to mind, I can safely say that I have never seen anything like what is happening right now. And I think I echo the sentiments of many of my friends and colleagues who hold a wide range of political opinions and say that I will be happy when it is over.
1: Yeah, I was just saying this to my daughter the other night while we were watching the debate. I can't wait till this presidential election is over. It's just getting tiresome. And, and you know, indeed, I think it is fair to say, you know, I'm a historian. I'm always the one who's saying, no, there's a precedent for this. No, you know, there's, there, you know, nothing is new. But there's a lot of stuff going on in this campaign that I think is unprecedented. I think it might be fair to say. Uh, I also like the way history was invoked in the debate. Maybe maybe like isn't the best word, but history was certainly invoked in the debate. Uh, You know, George Washington and Muslims, I think Hillary mentioned, she mentioned that the country was founded on religious liberty, a claim that I think is only partially true. Then there was the whole Abraham Lincoln movie fiasco. Of course, Trump saying, make America great again, which sort of asks historians to enter into the conversation. You know, how many times does Trump say the worst ever? You know, that's a that's a historical statement. Again, these are all kinds of situations where historians may have something to say.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly true, though. I also think we as historians need to be a little bit careful. It's not too hard, as many people who've listened to one of my lectures can tell you, to become a little too wonky or too academic so uh, when we do that, we limit our audience, I think. Yeah, this is, go back and listen to our last episode when
1: we did talk about overly wonky <laughs> tweets, right? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. When we talk on Twitter, I do that a lot during the debates. You could follow me at JohnFia1. But a person asked me on Twitter, you know, how does a historian enter into the conversation as a historian on, say, a phrase like, make America great again? And, you know, my response is, you know, we're not there to say whether or not America was great or wasn't great in a past time, but we are there to say, you know, to draw attention to the conditions of life in past eras and then let, you know, let the informed citizen decide.
0: Yeah. I mean, Twitter is certainly an interesting tool for historians trying to enter into a public conversation. It's so immediate. You can jump in right as the moment is happening. But it's also very challenging. You know, we historical thinkers revel in nuance, and that's a difficult thing to accomplish in 140 characters. Our studio producer, Michaela Mummer, is also
1: with us. Michaela, help us sort this political stuff all out. Who should we vote for?
0: I
2: don't know if I should get into that with you guys. You guys seem more like the experts on this topic. I'll I'll let that one up to you. I'm not going to sway you any which way. I think Mi- you guys know what you're up to.
1: Michaela is very smart. I think that's <laughs> why we hired her. Exactly. If you enjoyed this episode of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast or have enjoyed past episodes, please help us keep the podcast going by sharing it with your friends. Please consider downloading, subscribing, and especially reviewing the podcast out of iTunes. We are also developing a more concrete way you can support our efforts here, so stay tuned for more details in future episodes. And speaking of episodes, Drew, what do we have on tap for episode 12?
0: Well, we're very excited today to welcome Rebecca Onion. She's a staff writer for Slate, where she covers new historical research and history in archives, museums, classrooms, and on the web, as well as history in popular and public culture. She also runs the Slate-hosted blog, The Vault, where she posts intriguing archival documents and images, giving readers a glimpse into how historians construct their narratives of the past. Needless to say, she is our type of person. She holds a Ph.D. in American Studies from University of Texas at Austin is currently, and is currently dropping some scholarly work titled Inno- Innocent Experiments, Childhood, and the Culture of Public Science in the United States, which is out actually just this month with the University of North Carolina Press.
1: Yeah, Drew, I've been a fan of Rebecca Onion's work for quite some time. I've never met her. I've never spoken with her, so I'm really excited about the interview. I try to read her her blog, The Vault, every day or every other day or so, and often mine some things from that blog for my Sunday night odds and ends feature at the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog. We want to talk to her today about how she bridges the gap between academic history, again, as, as Drew, you just mentioned, she has a monograph coming out, and then writing for the public. So I think it's going to be a great interview.
0: Yeah, and you actually have some thoughts on that, too. So you've prepared a story for us today on how you've brought your own historical scholarship into the public.
1: In July 2011, I was invited to Arizona to participate in Hot Summer Nights conversation and discussion series sponsored by an evangelical megachurch in the town of Gilbert. The plan was for a member of the congregation to interview me for one hour, followed by 30 minutes of questions. My book, Was America Founded as a Christian Nation?, would be the topic of conversation. One of the pastors of the church told me in advance that Hot Summer Nights was a very popular event at the church. The previous summer, the congregation hosted Senator John McCain, Despite this warning, I was quite shocked when a few hundred people packed in the church cafe. Yes, you heard me correctly, this church had a cafe. These folks showed up on a July evening, a night in which Phoenix hosted the Major League Baseball All-Star Game, to learn about history. I was impressed. The interviewer for the evening was Steve, a prominent Phoenix attorney and businessman. I was a bit skeptical about discussing American history with someone from the business world, but Steve turned out to be the perfect inquisitor. A devout evangelical Christian and a graduate of Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs, Steve was more than up to the task. He handled the evening like a real professional. He questioned some of my assumptions, but also gave me the freedom to elaborate on some of my book's central themes. There was even a lightning round in which Steve peppered me with questions and demanded short and concise answers. I should add here that Steve learned that lightning rounds did not work very well with historians who make their living preaching the complexity of the past. The question and answer session was spirited. I'm not sure that everyone was happy with my historical approach to the subject, and a few members of the audience made that abundantly clear, but in general I left optimistic. I wanted those in attendance to see the value of historical thinking, and I think I largely succeeded. When I arrived home, someone asked me if it was worth it to fly all the way to Phoenix from my home in central Pennsylvania to speak for one hour to a group of evangelicals about whether or not the United States was founded as a Christian nation. I answered with a resounding yes. I have done many of these kinds of events in the past couple of years, and I want to do more. As an American historian, I want my fellow citizens to think about the past and apply it to the present in a more nuanced way. My hot summer night in Phoenix and the dozens of other public talks and interviews I have given over the years have forced me to rethink my vocation as a historian. I am more convinced than ever that some academics and scholars are called to take their research and explain it to a popular audience in an enthusiastic and passionate way. This requires taking the time to leave the ivory tower, hit the road, and meet people in all kinds of settings. It requires bringing knowledge and historical thinking to real places and communities. We need more historians who want to eliminate whatever barriers exist between them and the public and find common ground with a public audience in a way that affirms what people already know about the past and challenges them to think more deeply in a way that is accessible and non-provoking. This is easier said than done. Most historians don't have the time or inclination to do this kind of work. Yet I remain convinced that history has much to offer our public life. It is time for historians, teachers of history, and serious students of the past to be in the business of teaching the public how to think historically. I am encouraged that there are many in the historical profession who are moving in this direction. Over the course of the last several years, the American Historical Association, the most important organization of historians in the world, has challenged its members to connect with the larger public. Go back to Episode 1 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast and listen to AHA Director Jim Grossman talk about this vision. Anthony Grafton, a recent president of the AHA, used his term in office to encourage historians to use the digital revolution as a way to communicate to public audiences. James Banner, in a great book titled Being a Historian, tells historians to take risks by writing in accessible prose, by not getting caught up in historiographical debates, and by treating readers of their work as fellow citizens. What an opportunity. Let's get to work. Well, again, we're really excited to have Rebecca Onion with us today. We're going to talk to her about her role as a public historian, as an academic historian, how she bridges those worlds. Rebecca, it's good to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Now, you've created quite a platform for yourself in terms of communicating history to an educated public. We We often do this at the end of the interview, but since the platform is so important, why don't you tell us, you know how you're out there doing history, you know, what is your, what is your platform? Tell us a bit about it.
2: All right. Well, at this point, I am a staff writer at slate.com and I, I write sort of longer pieces for the website about history and culture. That's sort of the shorthand way that I put it history and culture, which I'm sure we'll talk about what that means. But I also run the sites documents block, which is called the Vault, And it, also, which is not necessarily history-related, I send out the site's daily newsletter. So I do have some duties at Slate that aren't necessarily his- historical or directly historical. And since I'm staffing at Slate, I don't necessarily freelance that much anymore. But I used to do much more of that, writing for other publications like the Boston Globe and Aon and Virginia Quarterly Review and other places like that. But now it's they, they have me. So it's all slate all the time.
1: Okay, great. Yeah. Now you have a you have a, a PhD in American studies. Most of your your work, which we'll get to in a little while, your academic work is in is in history and American culture. You write again, as you just mentioned, for a popular online magazine. Tell us a little bit about your career trajectory thus far. How have you used your history training outside the academy?
2: Oh yeah. Oh, let's see. So All the way back in 2000, if we can fly back in the time machine into way back then, I also had an undergrad degree in American studies and I went straight from undergrad to working at a teen magazine in New York. And this was a magazine called YM that is now dead because most teen magazines are now dead. The internet killed them, basically, which is a fascinating cultural phenomenon in and of itself.
1: Now, was this kind um, of like a like a, the Tiger Beat or one of those kind of pop? Uh,
2: <laughs> we, we fancied ourselves a little bit more elevated than that, like a little
1: more upscale. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I
2: mean, it was a uh, you know, it was, it was like seventeen. Our competitors were seventeen and Cosmo Girl teen people. And the reason I took that job is that there was a woman working there named Christina Kelly who had worked for a teen magazine named Sassy that was sort of formative for me in the early 1990s. It was the sort of the first feminist teen magazine. And so she was really interested in hiring people who wanted to write longer features, who wanted to, you know, sort of write about social justice, write about what was going on in, you know, young women's actual lives. And that was why I ended up taking that job is that she was working there and I really admired her. And I ended up learning a ton while I was there about writing to a word count, writing in relationship to other people at a magazine, like the people who do the art and the people who copy edit. Right. Um, we actually had like way more of a fact checking apparatus than is currently available to most people writing for the web. Magazine style fact checking, which was pretty intense, and, wow, that and was is, a good yeah. a good training for me. You know, coming coming out of undergrad where you write a paper and one person reads it or maybe two people if you know it, if it's like you give it to a friend to proofread before you give it to your TA or whatever right right um coming into this situation where I was running professionally I learned a lot from it and I uh, but I didn't really want to do that forever and I didn't want to I felt a little constrained by I guess the subject matter and also had a little bit of sort of just maybe mid twenties angst. I don't know quarter life crisis kind of situation where I just saw, I don't really know what my topic yeah, is. Sure. And I sort of saw journalists around me in New York. I was living in New York at the time who had a very definitive idea of what they wanted to write about and what they were interested in. Right. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to write for teen girls forever, <laughs> but I don't know what I want. And I really loved my undergrad education in American studies and ironically enough i was sort of much more of a writer about contemporary culture when i was an undergrad i was sort of uh you know really interested in like i wrote my senior thesis on the columbine killings which had happened a year before i wrote the thesis and sort of the media reaction to columbine which is funny to imagine now because now we have you know 16 more years of media reaction to similar right. events to analyze at the time it was a sort of like a rapid response thing that i was writing so i wasn't necessarily considering myself as much of a cultural historian as sort of like a, maybe a cultural critic or a cultural analyst. Sure. But I ended up, this is a long story. (laughs) I ended up going back to graduate school at the university of Texas at Austin, where there are a number of really smart and awesome cultural historians who through taking classes with them, I sort of became, you know, interested in, Not only what they are interested in, but sort of aligned with their methods of analysis and interested in the archive and interested in sort of the whole historiography and sort of more and more sort of thinking of myself in that way. Um, And then when I was leaving graduate school, so I told myself that during graduate school, I would surely write a lot of stuff for the popular press, you know, continue my freelancing career, which I had started before I went and then, of course, I got really absorbed in graduate school, as tends to happen. And I didn't do as much of that as I had thought that I would. Although I did, along the way, start writing for Slate. I wrote for Slate a couple times, which came to pass in part because I have a good friend from high school who's who was an editor there and is still an editor there. And in part through my sort of track record freelancing in New York before I left to go to Austin for graduate school. And then when I left... Graduate school. I had a postdoc at the the institution that at the time was known as the Philadelphia Area Center for History of Science.
1: Oh wow! Okay. Um, yes,
2: <laughs> it is now the Center for the History of Science, Technology, and I think math.
1: Where Where is that based out of? Uh, is there an institution uh, it's connected with?
2: oh uh, yeah, it's it's in Philly, um, okay. and it's actually not. It's a really interesting structure. It's you know it's a consortium, so it's a bunch of different all the institutions in Philly that are interested in history of science, which is a lot. Are sort of contributing to it or part of it. And then it's funded by grants from foundations. And now they're sort of expanding beyond Philly, which is why they changed their name. Okay. But anyway, so I had a really nice postdoc there for two years when I left Austin. And while I was in the postdoc, my friends at Slate contacted me with the idea to do the documents blog. Right. Um, so this was their idea. Someone at Slate, David Plotz, who was the editor until uh, I think 2014 had been given a behind the scenes tour at the national archives and had really enjoyed it and had put up a post on the site's culture blog about a document that he'd seen there and the post did really well. People liked it and were interested in it. And he thought, aha, there is a possibility for content here. (laughs) We can do, we can do something with this. Um, And then my friend who is Julia Turner, who's now the editor there, thought, oh, my friend just graduated from her PhD, you know, program. maybe she'd be interested in, in taking this on. And since I had already written for them, they knew me a little bit as well. So then the, so the vault was sort of my way in or the way that I started writing for them more, uh, like more consistently, more regularly. So that started in November, 2012. I actually launched the blog the same week that I defended my dissertation.
1: So, (laughs) wow,
2: which was a stressful week. Yeah, I imagine. Uh, and so, yeah, and I, I, at first I was writing, I was doing a document a day, so I had five documents a week that I was writing about, um, and I would write sort of 300 words about a document and it became sort of really absorbing, not just because it's always sort of been my, my sort of leaning to be interested in a lot of different stuff, which is very American studies also in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, some might call it dilettante. I don't know. (laughs) Um, (laughs) it depends on who you ask. I wrote my dissertation about 20th century topics but you know, I always would over vacations, I would, you know, read a biography of John Brown or like I, I was sure, just sure. interested in a lot of different periods. And so doing the vault was really fun for me in that way, because it gave me an excuse to sort of delve into a bunch of different little like little deep dives into literatures and, and archives. Um, okay. For those who are not familiar
1: yeah. with the vault, tell us a little yeah. bit about what goes on there now you've talked about you post a primary document uh or primary or a picture of an object or something and you know is that it i mean i can't remember do you interpret oh yeah yeah
2: oh yeah i interpret it so i mean well first of all of course you know as any historian would tell you that the the choice of the document itself is kind of an interpretation because as i moved along i started to see more and more you know it's so interesting how, you know, picking something that you are hoping that right. a popular audience, and in this case, an audience of educated, pretty educated people, and an audience on the internet, that choice is in itself very editorially significant.
1: Yeah.
2: Um And And I found as I went along, like, that more than anything else, that's what mattered, is yeah. the document itself. So, right. you know, whenever people pitch the vault or ask, you know, can I write for the vault or can I... How how can I do this? Which I will say that a lot of academics have written posts for me, and I really love having academics write posts for me. I'll always say the first thing that matters is the document. So a lot of times I think, you know, popular history writing sort of leads with the story or maybe sometimes leads with the biography or sort of depends on how you think of it. But this was sort of a, a mind trick to sort of to spin it a little and say, no, this is like a museum, basically. We're gonna have a document and then we're gonna that in and of itself will be that'll be the subject of the right. headline, that'll be the offering. And then in my writing, I try to say, here is the sort of and what what you would advise any what what a good professor has students do in class sure. with a primary source, which is to say, you know, what was the context of its making? Right. How is it that how is it alike or different from other stuff that was made around the same time. Is it remarkable in this way or remarkable in that way? And what can it tell us about the time in which it was made Of course. and sort of approaching it less from a completist perspective and more from, you know, I had to sort of teach myself not to try to say every single thing about the document, right, right. <laughs> um, which is a little hard, but you know, um, in the end those posts are about between 300 and maybe 400 words at the most. Sure. So You have to be pretty economical.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love the point you make about the document, leading with the document and the actual placing of the document on the vault website is an act of interpretation because I always, you know, I blog. So sometimes I'll just link, you know, link to a site and maybe give a little taste of the article that I'm linking to. And, you know, I don't even, sometimes I don't even comment on the article. I just, but, but the very fact that, you know, I have an audience and mm-hmm. have some degree of authority, I guess, if people are following me, you know, you just mm-hmm. putting it out there and saying this is worthy of your time is a sort of active of interpretation in and of itself that most people don't realize. That's a great point.
2: Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And, and, yeah. Go ahead. And both with your authority. And then you're also you're also saying this is worthy of your time. And then on the Internet, at least you're saying, I think you'll be interested in this. Right. Exactly. Like, I'm, I'm like looking into your mind. Yeah. And predicting.
1: As long as we're talking yeah. about documents, Tell yeah. me, give me one or two of the favorite documents that you posted at the vault. Which ones are your favorites of all time? Oh boy. I know it's That's a tough question. One. I know it it's is. like it's like picking who your favorite child is or something, right?
2: <laughs> Totally. I actually have a section on my website. Hold on. Let's see. I really liked oh uh, oh I'm sort of a I really love everything from the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties, and I sometimes get sort of stuck in picking vault posts um between like 1880 and 1940 um because it, it's sort of my natural habitat in a way i wrote a post in 2013 about a group of posters that the, the printers mather and company um printed for to promote efficiency in the workplace so it's sort of motivational posters and they're kind of amazing and they're sort of combination of ideology and then there's this sort of like really bright um lithography that's really sort of beautiful but mostly i like it because it sort of it tells you a little bit about what what managers wanted to promote in their employees and this sort of this idea of being a middle or upper class office worker and what that meant to people okay. and sort of like the you know the mental frame of mind that was promoted for that likewise in a, another 1920s one mm-hmm. in a 2014 I, I posted a cross-section of the the, the evening star offices the uh, evening star was a washington dc paper and they they printed a cut a cutaway drawing uh, of a cross-section of their offices in 1922 where you can see all the different departments
1: oh cool and
2: yeah. i love cutaway drawings in general I yeah. just, i'm a huge fan of them and and this is of course you know particularly intriguing because of the sort of vanished nature of this kind of newspaper now but you know it has all these little sort of Figures going about their business inside the office. And of course, I like the idea that other, oh, here's a newspaper kind of showing people, right. showing people inside its workings and, and telling readers how they do what they do.
1: Well, they're they're two great documents. Um, let's yeah. you know, let's let's point our listeners up to the hey, to yeah. the vault. I mean, there's some just some great stuff that you post on there on a regular basis. I check it every other day or so. I often steal things, and I have a I have a thing on my blog called Sunday Night Odds and Ends. I sometimes steal some of your stuff and link to it. So uh, hey, it's a it's a, it. yeah it's a it's a great it's a great website for people who are interested in history. Now, one of the reasons that we had you on Rebecca was because you're so good at sort of bridging the gap between academic history and public history. But that's that's not easy. I mean, that's a challenging thing to do to make kind of really good history even maybe academic history accessible for, for the public. What are some of the challenges that you face in doing that?
2: Oh boy, I mean, that's the million dollar question, right? Uh, I, I think, I actually think that in a way, Maybe it's I've been spoiled for writing for the slate audience because they really like it. <laughs> they get excited about it. And by it I mean the kinds of historical articles that I write. But in a way, I actually think that audiences that are maybe maybe a little bit more educated, I guess you should could say, kind of like the stuff. Like I feel like academic historians have a sort of set of ideas about what they should do when they're writing for the public that kind of can lead them astray sometimes. And some of those ideas are you know, people don't want to read about arguments, people don't want to read about historiography, people want to read narrative, people don't want to hear too much, too many details or, and or people want to hear about stuff that reminds them of the present day or like connects to the present day in some way, all of which are probably true in some to some degree. But I think that there's actually more of an audience for, you know, the kind of writing that sort of like pulls back the curtain a little bit on academic history and says like for example right now (laughs) and you know before and after this phone call I'm I'm writing about the new birth of a nation movie and I'm writing you know a little bit about not too much because it can never be too much right but a little bit about sort of the historiographical struggles that have occurred over that story the Nat Turner story over the years and I think there is a point at which there's you know, maybe academic infighting is not that exciting for people, but like, I always think of a piece that I wrote earlier this year, for Slate about the historiography that's sort of growing around Native American slavery, the history of Native American enslavement and the United States or, you know, the, the colonies that became the United States. And that piece was basically, it was saying to readers, Hey, you know, People in, in academic history departments are really talking about this right now. And they're sort of like fighting it out or, you know, not like in an oppositional sense, but like there's a story here that's being flushed out that people are people who study this for their livelihoods are are talking about.
0: Um, oh, absolutely. I mean, that the article you're referencing it, it is very much I remember I, I remember it distinctly because I was so excited to see that conversation being brought to a public audience that conversation is exactly one of my seminar conversations right you know that uh, that you know i'm still in grad school and i happen to be studying colonial native america and i was so struck by how much that was taken just from the seminar table in in my kind of contemporary experience or whatever
2: yeah uh, hopefully in a good way i mean hopefully oh hopefully, i know absolutely in, you know, is inclusive rather than exclusive, I guess. No, yeah.
0: ab- absolutely. And I, you, yeah. you also just bring up that point, and I think Austin Cleon has a, a book out called "Show Your Work," and and that's kind of his whole argument. He's an artist, is that we're in a moment, and maybe our generation is really interested in seeing how artists, how thinkers, how anybody is doing what they do, and and that's a very different thing. We're we're less interested in the final product and more interested in the process, and and I think historiography is a great way to give readers a glimpse into the process of doing history. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing in that regard. Yeah,
2: uh, I totally agree with that. Yeah. Also. yeah. Um, <laughs> well,
0: as a graduate student, too, I've just outed myself as a graduate student. Uh, yeah. um, you know, I, I do want to ask you kind of directly, what kind of advice do you have for someone like yeah. me, someone who is looking at, you know, a not great job market and but l- also still really cares about the value of what I'm doing? What kind of advice would you give to someone who is, looking to get their own work out into the world.
2: Well, I mean, I think there's a big difference between being in that position and wanting to make it your livelihood to write about history for a popular audience and being in that position and wanting to sort of like publish a few pieces on your research. The latter is, there's a whole set of advice I could give about pitching that I think, I mean, obviously it's easier. That's sort of an obvious thing to say. Like clearly it's easier to place a few pieces than to to build a sustainable life from writing. And I think the biggest difference would probably be that in order to build a sustainable life from writing, A, I've been super lucky. And I sort of part of that luck came from having worked in this field before I went to graduate school and made friends in this field. And, you know, a little bit of it is, you know, networking, the old connections, connections situation. And then part of it is that I'm not really writing about not writing very often about the stuff that I that I wrote about in my dissertation. I'm not I've sort of had to return in some way to that sort of like, I guess open-minded curiosity or like a sort of more uh more broad set of interests so that when my editors say, Hey, can you write something about, you know, Colin Kaepernick's t-shirt that has that had a Malcolm X and Fidel Castro on it. And this is the the quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers who has been kneeling during the national anthem who wore this T-shirt. And that's something in the news that, you know, I haven't written about Malcolm X, the history of Malcolm X, the history of his relationship with Castro or any of that. And this was maybe a couple months ago, uh, six weeks ago or something that I wrote this piece. And I had to just sort of be quick about it and not be too worried or nervous that I didn't have all of the literature under my belt already or try to figure out ways around not having all the literature under my belt already. And that is sort of a set of affinities and skills that has to do with, like I said, open-mindedness or like sort of like a, a more broad set of interests or a more, a willingness to sort of think, think of my, my quote unquote research, whatever it might be as covering a lot, a lot more than I thought of it as covering during graduate school. And then part of it has to do with figuring out how to write quick, figuring out how to be less nervous about writing. I think being nervous about writing is something that you get taught in graduate school. I think it gets ingrained in you in seminars to be really worried. Maybe it depends on the graduate school you go to to be, to try to, you know, sort of check every box and be very careful and not miss anything. And if you're writing publicly, that is still obviously really important, but you have to sort of sort of push past it in a lot of situations and all of those things just come with practice. So I would say that, you know, if you're still in graduate school and you're thinking about some kind of path like this, the best possible way is to try to start writing while you're, while the stakes are a little bit lower and you're not yet at a point where you need to make all of your money from writing, which is hard. is you know, especially in the age of the internet, when there's a lot of people who want to pay you not very much money to write. You can, if you can figure out a way to practice that kind of writing while you're still, well, before you become totally reliant on it, I think that's, that is what I would say would be the way to go. Then again, I also know that it's, you know, at graduate school is all absorbing already, and it can be kind of daunting to imagine also starting a career as a writer. Right.
0: Let's transition though. I don't want I I don't want you to get so down on academic <laughs> writing because I you know you, you have a monograph coming out and you know I'm sure that's something you have invested a lot of time and energy into. So uh, tell us about your new book Innocent Experiments.
2: Yeah, so this is a book that I'm sure you guys will have said is publishing with UNC Press and it's my expand you know expanded dissertation monograph and it is a 20th century history of the way that people have sort of fastened anxieties and hopes about the possibilities of science on scientific kids so it's a history of kind of chemistry set explosions and astronomy nerds and children's encyclopedias and science museums and it's sort of a dual sort of a history of institutions trying to encourage scientific thought in children and also of the very idea that scientific thought is sort of natural to childhood or should be encouraged in children and the ideas of citizenship and nationality and gender that get tied up in those concepts
0: that's very interesting. You know, I, I have a one-year-old, and I'm in the process, you know, of buying those toys and thinking about what kind of influence they could have on her future and the future of our society. As I live vicariously through her success, <laughs> so I'm going to have to give that when that comes out here at the end of the month. I'm going to have to give that a read and maybe yes. it, it, interpret that as a parent. Uh, oh yeah,
2: it's all about vicarious living, basically. Oh, great. <laughs> like a lot of works in childhood studies. Yeah, it's absolutely. about that impulse. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much. You know, we're, we're out of time here, but we, we've been joined today by Rebecca Onion. She's just a wonderful historian in the public who writes for Slate.com. Her blog, The Vault, is just a wonderful resource for anybody who's interested in historical thinking. And, and Rebecca, we just really appreciate you joining us today. Well,
2: thanks so much. This has been fun.
0: Yeah, thank you. I think I have in, in the past tweeted that uh, Rebecca Onion is the historian we need right now. Uh, she really is doing a great job of being a historian in public, which I think is such a such a hard skill to master. So we're really glad that she joined us today.
1: Well, Drew, I guess it's time for me to check my Twitter feed, check Facebook, and write a blog post. So thanks for listening, everyone, and may your way of improvement always lead home.
0: This has been a production of The Wave Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewaveimprovement.com. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes so others may more easily find this podcast. The podcast was recorded at the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse. Thanks to Ed Ark for all of his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Rebecca Onion. Our studio producer is Michaela Mummert. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermling, and your host is John Fia.